if you've ever been a family caregiver or you are one now, you know what it feels like to be taken for granted. Now, in the best sense, that might mean you don't think twice about doing everything you can for a loved one. But on the downside, some of what's needed to care for someone at home might be quite complicated and time-consuming. And no one from healthcare apparently, has bothered to talk with you about what's required. It's this gap in recognition, communication, information, and support that's getting some long overdue attention right now. And we're going to take a look at why and what might be some promising models and initiatives on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're offered live, bi-weekly, and after the show, you can find us on IHI.org or on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. We have a lot of areas represented on today's program for this topic. That's why I'm eager to introduce our panel. But first, here's IHI's Dorian Burks, and he's filling in for John Gothier today to remind all of you how to make the most of your time with us, Dorian. Thanks, Madge. Um, I have just a few items to point out to help you all make the most of today's program. So if you're logged onto the computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through speakers or headphones, you will see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we re- recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, uh, please feel free to send a quick message to the host in the chat. A simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have uh, their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I'll be providing a direct download link in the chat in just a minute. Um, Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking to improve the listener experience here on WIHI. We need your help for that. Um, Please take the time after the program to fill up a quick survey and let us know how we've done. And now back to you, Mitch. All right. Thanks so much, Dorian. Now we're going to turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. And we also welcome tweeting during and after the program. And if you could, please include at the IHI and hashtag WIHI in your tweets so we can connect others to that conversation. And a reminder, if you are only tuned to WIHI by phone and you're not logged in, you're welcome to email info at IHI.org to get hold of all the materials we'll be sharing on the show. So let me go ahead and introduce our panel and please refer to their bios. We have slides and that'll all be up on the website site two for more details on each of our fine guests. Joining us by phone, we have Jennifer Wolf. She's Associate Professor of Health Policy and Management at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Division of Geriatric Medicine and Gerontology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Welcome, Jennifer. This is this is your time to say you're here, and I Dorian's going to make oh, sure hi. you're... Hi. <laughs> everyone. That's how we know you're there. (laughs) It's our second sound check. Okay. Also on the phone, Meg Cabot began working in the U.S. Veterans Administration Caregiver Support Program in 2011 and currently serves as the National Director. In this role, she serves as the Principal Advisor to Senior Leaders across the VA on caregiving. Welcome, Meg. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Our next panelist joining remotely is Becky Stamets. She's the Senior Director of Clinical Innovation for the Center for Clinical Innovation in the Geisinger Institute for Advanced Application. Welcome, Becky. Thanks for having me. All right, very good. And Dorian's going to advance these slides so we can see some of the other bios. Uh, just so you know, Jennifer, they're, they're in there. Uh, you have to kind of see the whole deck there. There we go. There's Becky's. And uh, now we, I also want to introduce Carol Levine. And we don't yet have an audio connection with Carol Levine, but she'll be back with us uh, momentarily. She directs the United Hospital Fund's Families and Healthcare Project, which focuses on developing partnerships between healthcare professionals and family caregivers especially during transitions in healthcare settings. So Carol will be with us uh, very shortly. And finally, some company for me here in the studio, Christina uh, 
Arthur Murphy. She's an executive director at IHI, and she oversees IHI's person and family-centered care focus area. And Christina really helped shape today's show. Hi, Matt. All right, great. All right, we're going to flip back to Jennifer Wolf now. Jennifer, everyone knows the vital contribution that millions of family caregivers make, yet the experience of feeling invisible to healthcare providers is often quite pronounced and is not a new issue. Is this changing? Is it about to change? Welcome again. for covering this topic. I think it's an amazing sign of progress that forward-thinking organizations like IHI, Geisinger Health System, and the Veterans Administration are actively developing strategies to better recognize and support family caregivers. So, Madge, you asked the question about family caregivers feeling invisible within care delivery, and there's a long history of family caregivers being described as a shadow workforce in large part because they operate outside formally recognized professional practice, financing, and regulatory arrangements. Uh, Family caregivers' presence isn't currently captured um, in care delivery in a way that allows provider organizations an understanding of how often they're involved, who they help, what they do, um, or how their involvement affects care outcomes. I recently had the privilege of serving as a member of a National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine committee that was responsible for writing the recently released report, Families Caring for an Aging America. And major findings of the report speak to the dramatic implications of the aging of the population, as well as delivery and payment reform, which are bringing into sharper focus the public policy significance of family caregiving. Although family caregiving, as we all know, is intensely personal, There's a large body of empirical evidence from national surveys which indicate that family caregivers um, provide the um, overwhelming majority of help to individuals who have the most significant health and functioning needs. The Congressional Budget Office estimates that family caregivers provide 80% of the economic value of long-term services and supports. And there's also a growing awareness of the important role that family caregivers play in healthcare delivery such as in attending doctor's visits, managing medications, and helping patients transition across settings of care, such as from the hospital to home. Also, recent payment and delivery reform efforts and the move towards population health and bundled payments are making family caregivers a natural partner in the delivery of high-value care. Chapter 6 of the Families Caring for an Aging America report that I just mentioned focuses on family caregivers' uh, interactions in care delivery. And a major conclusion of the report is that families are now often ignored or marginalized in the delivery of care, due in large part to the poor alignment of traditional systems that govern financing and delivery of services, as well as the prevailing legal and regulatory frameworks which prioritize patient privacy and the protection of personal health information and that may leave family without appropriate and beneficial access to information that they really require when they're coordinating care or managing medications on behalf of individuals who don't have the capacity to do so themselves. Most notable to IHI and other health system stakeholders is the report finds little in the way of existing evidence-based strategies, tools, and approaches that are directed at explicitly identifying, partnering, and supporting family caregivers in systems of care delivery. Uh, Before I turn over the mic to Becky, I'll briefly mention two lines of work that I'm pursuing, um, which are directed at uh, uh, developing the research base around how to identify and support family caregivers and systems of care. I'd like to make a plug that a good starting place, uh, maybe with respect to recognizing and supporting the role of families in electronic and face-to-face communication with health professionals, um, I have an active, an area of my own active research is developed, it's, um, is focused on developing structured processes to improve patients and families' um, ability to work together to develop and achieve a visit agenda when they interact with healthcare professionals. Um, there are many ways this might be achieved. I've started with focusing on pre-visit agenda setting um, strategies and uh, developing a checklist that patients and families can self-administer in a waiting room before a medical visit to help them elicit and align their expectations and visit objectives in advance of a um, medical encounter. Um, we're now in the middle of a trial where we're testing the strategy for older patients in primary care who have cognitive impairment and their family members. 
I've also been actively working with Geisinger Health System and the Open Notes team on activities that relate to facilitating family involvement in care in electronic communication through affording family member or friend care partners their own identity credentials to access the patient's health portal, to view the patient's health information and doctor's notes, and to be able to communicate with health professionals using secure messaging um, as desired by patients. Um, this is a capacity that already exists um, and is available through many electronic health vendors. Um, the second area that I've been doing work relates to population health and uh, developing the evidence and improving knowledge with respect to um, how family caregiver characteristics relate to risk um, and older adults' risk for health events and developing prognostic models that incorporate family caregiver factors to increase our ability to identify and intervene in risky situations and to ensure that families are not being asked to do too much such that they and the person that they help are being placed in harm's way. And I'll turn that mic back over, over to you, Madge. Thank you very much. I really appreciate uh, your, your thoughtful remarks. I want to just make sure we share uh, this next quote, though, that you put together. Um, I think it's a, it's a very apt one. Um, so I think allies is part of what we're trying to be thinking about here. Uh, and it's, you know, not yet another thing to do, but it's an organic and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's an organic step. Okay. Thank you very much, Jennifer. All right. I want to uh, turn to uh, Becky Stamets now from Geisinger. So Geisinger, as many of you know, is known for getting out in front of any number of quality issues and making some pretty bold commitments and uh, publicly so. So should we be looking to Geisinger again to innovate with family caregiving and maybe pick up some of the batons and themes that Jennifer is talking about? So welcome again, Becky. Hey, thanks for having me, everyone. Um, first, I want to thank the entire IHI team for the invitation and for coordinating this important panel session. Um, understanding how to develop new ways of recognizing and supporting family caregivers within the health system has been an important effort for Geisinger Innovation over the past three to four years. Um, before I talk about the current initiatives underway here at the health system, I'd like to briefly introduce the Institute for Advanced Application and our pretty uh, unique approach to patient and family engagement. Um, Geisinger's North Star is all about the patient, the patient experience, and continually advancing the quality of care delivery. We're about caring for our patients, their families, and our members. In 2013, Geisinger IAA um, was formed as a mix of a think tank, a research laboratory, which was strategically designed to be free from the constraints of conventional thinking about how new technologies and innovative approaches um, could inform the future of healthcare delivery. We have three lines of inquiry right now within the Center for Clinical Innovation, which is a center embedded in the institute. I have the privilege to be on a team of uh, highly effective multidisciplinary innovators who are focused on advancing engagement through leveraging health information technology, advanced analytics, and optimizing the clinic workflow. Our patient and family engagement laboratory has a broad range of expertise and experiences that espouses really an agenda to have across-the-board commitment to engagement with our Geisinger communities. We, uh, the laboratory works with Geisinger stakeholders, both patients and families, as well as the care providers to plan, to strategize, and ultimately organizing for learning and innovation. We seek to use the advancements in health information technology to foster communication, to facilitate transparency, education, and support of social networks between and among clinicians, patients, and their families, many of which Jennifer just touched on. Our approach to engagement is really um, um, fourfold. We try to connect people. We try to create a place to share, whether that's through using technology or uh, the Open Notes initiative. We build trust by enhancing and um, putting out there the medical information for being transparent through places like the patient portal. And we try to then create knowledge in a way that uh, uses anticipatory knowledge like the electronic health record data along with patient experiences and characteristics to enhance the clinical encounter and system. 
So our approach to engagement and leveraging technology um, focuses on supporting caregivers and targets the development of new care delivery solutions. We aim to have these solutions enable successful healthcare teams to be more efficient, to allocate time and resources, and improve patient care and lower costs, and give the tools and information to the families to coordinate this type of care. We do this in many ways. We uh, first maybe, and these could all include how to identify family caregivers within a clinical setting, how to connect and share information. We do acknowledge the digital divide with caregiving and the development of, so we aim to develop uh, mobile applications or web applications or tools that take advantage of that anticipatory knowledge to enhance the productivity of patient encounters. We have transparency in data, which is leveraging our proxy access within our system's patient portal. We aim to help to coordinate the care to decrease burden and anxiety with the family caregivers at home. And we have a unique privilege to implement and test these types of initiatives in real clinic settings. So that was the approach, and I think uh, what I want to do is talk very briefly about three concrete examples of our efforts to support family caregivers that are currently underway. The first one is Open Notes, and Jennifer briefly uh, spoke about that. In 2010, Geisinger joined the Beth Israel Deaconess in Harborview, an experiment to evaluate the impact of sharing physician notes to patients through a secure portal. The Open Notes is a movement that is stimulating transparency and innovative change with the goals of improving communication and engaging patients more actively in care. Since that 2010 timeframe, Open Notes at Geisinger has expanded across many therapeutic areas with residents and learners and most recently family caregivers or what we call care partners in this case. In partnership with my colleague Jennifer, we examined the acceptability and effects of delivering those doctor's notes electronically via open notes to patients and their care, par care partners who authorize access to the patients of medical electronic records. We studied this with both adult patients and their care partners through a pre and post survey that was um, really trying to evaluate the exposure of 12 months of that open note. At the conclusion of this, uh, Jennifer, we did co-publish a few articles uh, within Jamia. Uh, parents, uh, patients and their care partners stated that they had better agreement about the patient treatment plans, more productive discussions about their care. At follow-up, patients were more confident in their ability to manage their health. They felt better prepared for their office visits and reported understanding the care better than at baseline. And care partners were more likely to access and use patient portal functionality and reported improved communication with patients, providers at follow-up. The second initiative is what we call the Family Caregiver Application. This is a project that evolved out of a Merck-Geisinger collaboration, which is a long-term strategic partnership centered around the co-develop of innovative health solutions with the intent of testing at Geisinger and bringing them to the broader healthcare market. Among those solutions currently under development is the Family Caregiver Application. In brief, it's an EHR integrated tool with the aim to improve communication and transparency between and among patients, caregivers, and their clinicians. It's currently being piloted with oncology patients and their caregivers here at Geisinger. And the third effort is focusing on the health literacy of dyads, the dyads meaning that care partner, that informal caregiver, and the patient. In partnership with Dr. Jamie Green, who's a nephrologist here at Geisinger, we developed and implemented an office-based health information technology-enabled process to identify informal caregivers of patient, adult patients with kidney disease and to assess their health literacy of that dyad. The purpose was both to understand and test the collection of caregiver information in a clinical setting and to look at the impact of the overall health literacy of that dyad and the impact it had on patient outcomes. In brief, uh, we use different modalities in the clinic setting, such as iPads, to collect information that received by patients, their care partners, and the staff. The responses of this electronic means was then pushed into the electronic health record and available to providers to review in real time in advance of their encounter. When we studied this, 60% of patients reported they received help with at least one health-related task which, with their care partners. Their care partners were most often a spouse, an adult child, or other relative. We, um, among the dyads, patients were overall more likely to have a limited health literacy than the caregivers. 
uh, we did understand that patients with lower health literacy were significantly less likely to use an electronic health portal and more likely to have an active proxy user. We do continue to study this, this, uh, this work and future analyses are planned to determine the impact of care partner literacy on uh, those patient outcomes. So, uh, Madge, that was three examples of, of some of the efforts uh, that innovation at Geisinger are currently exploring and really using advanced analytics and health information to kind of develop new care pathways. I think it's terrific. Thank you very much, uh, Meg. And it really does bring in the kind of technology piece here uh, and what it has to do with connectivity and including and involving uh, family caregivers as well. So I hope folks have some questions about that. Thank you very much, Meg. All right. I want to now... Uh, where is where my pieces of paper here? All right, so I'm gonna. Uh, I've I've heard from Jennifer, heard from Becky. We're gonna. I'm sorry. I'm I'm mixing everybody up. That was Becky talking. Don't mind me. Now we're gonna turn to Meg. Okay. <laughs> My apologies. All right. We're turning now to Meg Cabot. Uh, it seems the Department of Veterans Affairs has had family caregivers on its radar screen for a long time. It, too, is ramping up some new things, though. So, uh, Meg, tell us what's going on. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Madge, and, and really thank you to IHI for, for putting on uh, such a, an important topic, and uh, it's really a thrill for me to be part of such a distinguished panel. Uh, you know, I, I think you're right. I think over many years, VA has been able to provide some support and services to veterans who require the assistance of, of a caregiver to live at home. Many of these kinds of services are things that uh, may not be avail available through traditional health care, uh, through traditional health insurance, things like equipment, uh, paying for home health aids, paying for uh, skilled nursing, paying for adaptation to a house, adaptation to a vehicle, uh, to transport that veteran, all of those kinds of things that make life much easier for a caregiver as they are supporting their loved one. What's really changed over the past 10 years is that VA has been able to provide support and services that really address the psychosocial needs of that caregiver as well as education and training needs. So just, uh, you know, in the federal government, we, we do what, uh, Congress asks us to do. So back in 2007, one piece of legislation was passed that allowed VA to do some pilot work. And there were a series of pilots across the country. Uh, there were, um, eight different programs that were similar to some of the things that you've heard about so far, really identifying areas where caregivers may need more support. So providing uh, telephone support after transition from hospital to home, doing some online training, those kinds of things. And the goal there was really to to take a look at uh, what may work in the VA integrated healthcare system and then provide that across the country. So those pilots concluded in 2009, and we've been able to implement a couple of those different programs, uh, including uh, one program called Building Better Caregivers, which is an online training program, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, as well as REACH VA, and many of you may be uh, familiar with REACH, which is the Resources for Enhancing all caregivers' health uh, was originally designed to support caregivers of individuals uh, who suffer from Alzheimer's or other cognitive deficits. And it's an ev it does have a strong evidence base, and it provides really uh, hands-on support to an individual caregiver, helping them problem-solve around uh, complicated behavioral issues, uh, allowing them to feel more successful as a caregiver and uh, to relieve some of their burden. So uh, in, after uh, VA concluded those pilots that I mentioned, in 2010, an additional piece of legislation was passed, which really has allowed VA to take what they were doing to the next level and uh, really provides an emphasis on supporting caregivers as we support veterans. This has allowed VA to really expand the kinds of programs and services it provides and also provides a very specific set of supports and services to caregivers of veterans who were injured uh, after September 11, 2001. 
So right now we have uh, about 20, uh, I'm sorry, about uh, 23,000 caregivers participating in this particular program. And this program provides a stipend that's paid directly to the family caregiver, uh, provides additional training to them, and also provides them with health insurance if they don't have access to other health insurance. Many of our uh, seriously injured veterans who were injured in Iraq and Afghanistan are being cared for by their parents. And they may not be eligible for some of the supports and services because they're not technically Dependence of that of that veteran. So this program has allowed us to provide them with health insurance, which is one of the more used uh, programs within this overarching comprehensive program. Uh, I do also I want to mention though many of the other training and education programs that we're able to provide to caregivers of all veterans, regardless of uh, why they need a caregiver, when they served, all those kinds of things. We have a whole menu of different training and education programs that, again, really address those psychosocial needs. Uh, they're on topics such as um, self-care, problem-solving, communication with the healthcare team. That's a very popular one. Dr. Wolf talked a lot about caregivers being in that healthcare delivery role, and that is certainly the case within veterans' healthcare. And so we really work hard in, in my program to empower those caregivers to talk and problem-solve with the, the treatment team and, and really become those allies that, that Madge mentioned. And in uh, using some military lingo, we call, uh, I refer to caregivers as force multipliers. They take what we're trying to do within our medical care system and really implement that at home, which is a really important piece of support to veterans. So as I mentioned, we have many different face-to-face uh, -face trainings around various topics. We also provide not only training but support over the phone in support groups. Uh, we also have uh, an online training program called Building Better Caregivers. I mentioned that earlier, which is a series of workshops. We've, uh, we partner with the National Council on Aging to provide that to caregivers of veterans enrolled in VA health care. We also have an active peer support program which is a really important part of, uh, I think, supporting caregivers is connecting them to one another and making sure that we can decrease their isolation and, uh, you know, really uh, help them feel not so, so alone, not so isolated. I do want to mention in here on the screen we have uh, a couple of really valuable um, parts of, of what we do in caregiver support and VA. One is our caregiver support line. Uh, that's a photograph of one of our social workers up at the Canadagua VA in upstate New York. Uh, they respond that that support line's been open for about five and a half years. Uh, it's staffed by social workers, and they answer about 150 calls a day from caregivers of veterans of all eras with all kinds of of uh, issues and reasons why they need caregivers. So uh, I encourage any caregiver of a veteran to start by calling that support line and, and uh, get connected to um, either the local VA or to other services as well. We also have a very active website. It's one of the most visited websites in all of all of the VA websites, and we have many, many websites. Uh, and I, I think the the use of both that support line and the website really speak to the need of of families and caregivers to get some assistance. They don't know where to turn at first, and they're both excellent entry points into uh, supporting them. We, uh, I, I also, Meg, <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> I wonder, am I done with my time? Oh God, I, I really, please don't find me rude. I, I wonder if no, I can, no, 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 no. I think I'm going to just, let's pause right there. Cause we can get, absolutely. A, we can get at some of this rich amount of resources. Just, um, absolutely. fantastic. And I want to get Thank Carol you. Levine in here and, uh, regular listeners to WIH, I know have a tendency to pack a lot in. So bear with us. Uh, you can definitely ask a uh, Meg some more questions and lots
lots of good contact information on there as well. Uh, so thank you, Meg. All right. I want to turn to Carol Levine before we go to chat. And a reminder, Christina will be helping out during Q&A. Uh, any questions for her as well? So Carol Levine, as somebody who's been in the trenches with family caregiving in the U.S. for many years, driven by your own experience and all your writing and your advocacy, what is it about this moment that strikes you? What's the opportunity that's before us? And just to give uh, folks a time check, I think we'll be turning to Q&A in about five minutes, so just running just a teeny bit behind. Thank you, Carol. Uh, go ahead. Okay. Thank you. And um, um, as the last speaker, I think there's a baseball term for this, but um, I won't go into that. Um, I want to thank my colleagues for their perspectives on federal policy programs. I'm going to talk about a few of the things that we at UHF hear directly from family caregivers and what health care providers can do right now to build stronger partnerships. But I also want to mention that um, all of the changes in the healthcare system, preventing hospital readmissions um, uh, in Medicaid, changing to Medicaid-managed long-term care, they all depend on the family caregiver. And as the slide shows, you, you don't support that family caregiver. Take that tile out of the bottom and the whole thing starts to fall apart, whether you're looking at an individual care plan or whether you're looking at a system. So family caregivers have always been important, but never more than now. Now, at UHF, we recently published a report called It All Falls on Me, Family Caregivers' Perspectives on Medication Management, Wound Care, and Video Instruction. And this report summarizes a series of discussion groups we conducted with family caregivers as part of AARP and our follow-up to our joint report, Home Alone. Um, both reports are on our UHF website. Briefly, we heard from family caregivers that healthcare providers fail to recognize the emotional impact of doing these challenging tasks like wound care. Healthcare providers fail to coordinate care. Family caregivers had to be resourceful and figure things out on their own. So these, um, these and other themes cut across ethnic and cultural lines. It's universal. Now, the next slide is a typical quote from a man who, um, and actually this, this is the slide, uh, the, the man said in the focus group, she had to get her medication through a pick line. I had to clean it, put in the new medication, repeat the whole process the next day, and then they changed it. And they... They just sent me a lady, a lady on the phone called, and I had to learn how to do it over the phone. Um, they should have sent us someone. So this, this is a very complicated process that really should not be left to an untrained family caregiver. Um, so this is, this is what's happening out there, unfortunately. So over the years, we've learned a lot about some basic things healthcare providers can do to help family caregivers. So here's a quick summary. Identify the right caregiver. Um, that sounds very basic, and it is, but if you're talking about medication management to, as we say, the daughter from California and we're in New York, it's not going to help. Um, the CARE Act in 30 states now relies on asking the hospital patient to identify the caregiver. That may not work um, if the patient is cognitively impaired, doesn't want to, quote, burden the family or fear it's losing independence. So we, we recommend just asking well, who helps you most at home? Who organizes your meds? Who takes you to the doctor? Second point, talk to the caregiver to find out what he or she can and can't do. Um, caregivers don't like the idea of being assessed. That seems like a judgment call. But asking them, you know, what, what, are, what are they able to do? What could they do with more training? What really can't they do for whatever reason? The third thing is to include the caregiver in developing the care plan. And I think some of the systems we've heard about do that. But be mindful of strengths and limitations. Providing, fourth, providing basic instruction and tips for adapting tasks to the home environment or making sure that a phone number is available for the caregiver to call to get their questions answered. And then, you know, even sometimes still you get, you call the doctor's office and say, there's no one here to answer your call. Call 911 and go to the emergency room. That's not right. Um, five, it just acknowledge that some aspects of caregiving are hard and are frustrating. Um, 
you. There are lots of different things that the care that caregivers can do. One of the things perhaps care providers can do, one of the things is not to use HIPAA as an all-purpose all excuse for not talking to family caregivers. I can't tell you how many times I still hear that is happening. It's, HIPAA does not prevent um, family uh, providers from talking to family caregivers. Um, you find more about these steps on our Next Step in Care website. That's www.nextstepincare.org, which has guidance for family caregivers as well as for providers. And finally, remember that each family caregiver is a unique individual, not a robot like Venus here who can be programmed to do tasks. I'm in favor of technology, but we really need people first. The caregiver is not the mirror image of the patient, but a vital part of the patient's life and well-being. They may see things differently, but they and all the people involved in the care need to work together as a team, and that's the final image here. So thank you very much. All right. Thanks. Thank you so much, uh, Carol. Really appreciate that. All right. So here's what we're going to do. Dorian's going to just remind you about the rules of the road with chat uh, very quickly. And a lot of you obviously have got it down and are sharing some of your comments and queries with us. And we'll get to as many of them as possible. And Christina will also help out. Dorian. Thanks so much, Madge. Um, so if you've turned in, tuned into WIHI before, you know about all the great conversation that takes place in the chat and that we're already seeing today. Um, so uh, just a reminder, you can ask uh, our panelists your questions. Um, so keep them coming um, and make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants um, when Madge opens up the floor to questions in just a second. And we'll all be able to see those and answer. Right. All participants. Christina's doing a great job at forwarding on anything that people have chatted into all attendees. Uh, unfortunately, the forcing function here gives too many <laughs> options. We just need one, a default one. All right. Well, thanks for a lot of your comments uh, and questions. And if you guys don't mind, I'm going to just barge in here and uh, I'm, I'm going to ask Jennifer and Christina both. Uh, I, one of the reasons we decided to have this program and talk about family caregiving, uh, as you can see from what's been represented here, people have been at this for a while, really, not only performing the tasks and taking care of people, but trying to figure out the best processes. And, uh, but we wanted to do this because there's this new expectation of healthcare, and healthcare is starting to wake up to a lot more of this. So, Jennifer, very quickly, because I, I don't want to uh, steal from other people's questions here, and maybe Christina can talk about IHI's interest. What is the inflection point we've come to right now? Can people expect to see some real changes, uh, maybe even at the policy level? There are a bunch of questions in here about payment, uh, for example, uh, and other issues. We're obviously hearing about technology and innovation. Uh, here's Carol talking about best practices. We can learn from the VA's program. But are we at some sort of an inflection or some sort of turning point right now? Thank you, Jennifer. Sure, and thanks for the uh, great question. Um, and I, I certainly hope we are at an inflection point. Um, certainly, um, the demographic trends uh, um, and health health and uh, delivery health payment and delivery reform are really changing. Uh, they're game changers, and we certainly see in many of the policy efforts that are underway um, in the Department of Health and Human Services national quality strategy in some of the um, uh, innovative work that's being undertaken by CMS, a greater appreciation that families really are providing an enormous amount of work um, and that they are a natural partner in um, high quality, high efficient care. Um, and that by we've also uh, see um, largely through qualitative studies um, and some emerging evidence from uh, national surveys that uh, this work is difficult and that not including families real in care uh, has the uh, potential perverse implications for sort of the opposite of the triple aim. So um, I certainly, I believe that the um, payment and delivery reform are setting the stage uh, for uh, the possibility for per 
for example, demonstration projects by CMS to uh, evaluate models that explicitly include families and set an expectation that, uh, that, that, that uh, partnering with families and providing them with um, the information that they need, the support that they need to care for, um, for beneficiaries. Uh, can lead for to better outcomes for patients, families, and the system. Um, and I believe there's some low-hanging fruit. Carol talked about HIPAA and some of the challenges around um, misinterpretation of HIPAA. Um, I think there that is certainly a low-hanging fruit where there's an opportunity here for the Office of Civil Rights to issue clarifying um, clar to clarify what what's the intent of of HIPAA. To potentially collect information to understand, are we doing better so that families have the information that they need? And then uh, this report sets forward um, really sort of the logical argument of why change is needed, and recommends the, um, a national strategy to move towards family-centered care, um, which really sort of is in the underpinning of what where we would want to go, recognizing that really you know health is promoted through families, and um, so families really are a natural ally in in, in a lot of the work that we're trying to do in care delivery and health care as well as long-term care. Thanks, Jennifer. Christina? Yeah, I mean, that was beautifully said. I think the only thing I would just add is that I think increasingly, at least at IHI, we are coming to the uh, obvious conclusion, but it's, you know, an insightful one that healthcare really, in order to get good healthcare requires, or good health outcomes requires co-production. And so I think as we start to think about how we're going to really help with health outcomes, caregivers become a really, really important part of helping people outside of the healthcare system manage and kind of achieve those outcomes. So I think uh, Jennifer talked a lot about the policy environment, but also the increasing evidence that this isn't effective. And I think I'd just add that as we think about how much of health outcomes uh, have, have nothing to do with the healthcare system, that caregivers become even more important. Okay, thank you very much. Always appreciate it uh, when each of you on the chat <laughs> respond to one another. It's very helpful. You are a fountain of information yourselves and have a lot of rich resources. Um, I want to ask uh, to what extent, Meg, uh, there's a, people can learn from the VA. Uh, I'm just curious in terms of caregiving support, is there any sort of a network that you're part of, uh, any of you really, uh, but I'll start with you, Meg, learning about best practices and maybe Becky could weigh in on that. In other words, how are people, fi people finding out, whoops, there goes my echo in there somewhere, uh, how are people finding out about what organizations are doing? Uh, as far as innovation uh, and perhaps coming forward for models. I don't know if there's any sort of clearinghouse, but there is a question trying to find out who can we learn from uh, apart from who we're learning from today. Let me start with you, Meg, and then Becky. Well, I, I think in, in some ways I would, you know, I would defer to, to Carol Levine about this question. She's been at this a lot longer than I have, but I, I would certainly say that uh, within VA, you know, sometimes, and this is true of, of all of, of healthcare for veterans, uh, you know, sometimes we get so focused uh, within VA on healthcare of veterans themselves. Uh, that, um, you know, we lose sight of the implications of what we're doing within VA that can have across all of healthcare and not, and not just within VA. So opportunities like this are, are so important. And I've worked very hard to have a lot of uh, uh, different relationships with different organizations who've been at this much longer. So AARP, the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving, uh, has a, a large collection of evidence-based uh, programs that they're information about on their website, the National Family Caregiver Alliance, the Caregiver Action Network. Many of these organizations have been at this a long time and, and have collected a lot of uh, information and a lot of data that really uh, can be very helpful in, in introducing programming. I, I think one of the biggest things that I have learned uh, in my time here at VA is that really outreach, direct outreach to caregivers will impact the kind of health care, the kind of resources that are being provided to veterans. Uh, I think this is especially true in uh, the mental health uh, arena where um, individuals may not be connected to services, but targeted outreach, targeted advertising to caregivers can actually lead then uh, to that individual getting some of the, the help that they need. 
Thank you very much. Becky, did you want to say something about that? I mean, how are you learning from others uh, in addition to doing your own innovation uh, so that others and people here even on the program today can kind of stay abreast of new models and initiatives? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's a it's an important question, but it's a hard question to really answer. I mean, I think the, you know, just the work that Jennifer Wolf and I have kind of done together and how it's evolved is an example of how we are collaborating across different types of um, disciplines in order to kind of tackle some of these pro- these problems that we're all talking about today. And I think, you know, it, it's so I I sit in a unique situation, right, with being in clinical innovation within an integrated healthcare system, and I, um, I really am a service to many of our academic, IT, and um, uh, clinical partners. So it's it's in a way that we are here as an innovation department to, um, yes, uh, quickly understand if if the if concepts. Uh, can be proven um, by using technology or analytics to do that. And then, I mean, innovation in, in, in a sense is to define new ways of delivering those types of things. So even when we look at the tips that Carol put up on the screen about um, tips for the caregivers and symptom management and contingency planning and all of those types of things, it would be innovation's role to work with someone like Carol to take those types of tips and see if there's ways to advance that type of concept in a way to embed it in a care path, to use technology, and work directly hand-in-hand hand with the folks who are living these problems. I mean, one of the things that we do always when we when we look at innovation is is work with our care partners and our patients to help design those solutions, whether that's uh, recommendations on what it should look like or use case scenarios, but they're always at the table with us. Somebody asked, by the way, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but just very quickly, somebody wondered whether any of the vendors, EHR vendors, are getting interested in any way uh, in incorporating uh, some of this into new designs. Amen. I think that's a good question. I, I can't speak to that. I, I'm not exactly sure about the the vendor the vendor situation. But I mean, one thing that I wanted to wanted to talk about it is about dissemination. It is about those best practices um, with innovation or even research and proving concepts that then could help change American healthcare. So what we do here at Geisinger, we really want the broader marketplace. Um, to, to adopt, um, but we have to get there first. And um, some of the concepts that I spoke about are really just in those, um, you know, those, those prototype types of phases um, before we go out and spread and disseminate those, those new learnings. Does that, does that make sense? Of course, absolutely. Um, I also want, thank you, Becky, and I want to make mention, there, I'm going to tie a couple of things together. So uh, Dr. Joanne Lynn, who's joined us today from the Altrum Institute, uh, talking about an, a forthcoming event in November that I hope you'll pay attention to, but suggested uh, in a recent uh, piece that may be creating and training a volunteer caregiver corps uh, to bolster and support family caregivers is something should be taken seriously. It's not, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be a moonshot. And I think this ties in to some comments being made on the chat about uh, burnout uh, when somebody asks a family caregiver what maybe that he or she may need most. It can be respite, uh, a break, uh, and uh, somebody else had a comment about assessing a family caregiver's abilities and readiness and literacy and healthcare even uh, to take on certain things. So I think there's kind of a bucket of issues about what is it. It's not just conveying information or knowing who the caregiver is, but really knowing who the caregiver, family caregiver is and this person's needs uh, as well. I don't know if, uh, I don't know, Carol, is that something you might want to uh, address in a sense? Uh, Are our expectations that we've got all the family members (laughs) we need to take care? There are some reports that suggest no, uh, that that's one of the things in the recent report uh, on families caring for an aging America, uh, that maybe there aren't all those people out there able. Carol, what are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah. Sure. When you look at demographics and when you look at, um, you know, um, individual situations, it's it's different. I 
the, the age boom is here. We're not, you know, it's not off in the future. Um, and families, for the majority of families, are stepping up and doing what needs to be done and doing it without, with, as I said, with precious little help. But I think what we need to really ask, and this is a hard question and I don't know how to answer it, are there things that we should not be asking family caregivers to do? There's this kind of expectation that everyone can learn how to do everything and everyone will, will or should be willing to do everything. After all, it's your mom. In my case, it was my husband. Um, one of the things that I lost as well as my husband, um, my husband's uh, ability to be a partner with me was I lost my identity. And we don't care much about family caregivers' identity other than their caregiving role. So I think we really need to see what is happening in each individual situation and then make it possible for people to do what they can do. Um, and provide the help. The question I hear most often from family caregivers is how can I get paid for being a family caregiver? Um, or where, who's going who's gonna to pay for this? I think we're underestimating the enormous financial burden that is happening to family caregivers and happening not only to the generation that's doing the caregiving, but to their children as well. You, it's it's really a serious problem that we really haven't come to terms with. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I know in Massachusetts and perhaps in other states, there are small efforts uh, through Medicaid, I believe, primarily where family caregivers can be the ones designated to receive uh, some of the money that might otherwise go to other um, home aids, but that may be just a, a small wedge in a, in a very big problem. I wonder, does anyone want to comment on what Carol uh, has just uh, spoken to? I don't know if that's something, uh, Jennifer, in, in your kind of research, uh, you know, just any reflections at all on what Carol just said? Sure. So, I mean, I, I, she spoke to uh, several different yep. issues. Um, <laughs> so yep. in terms of payment and your, your comment, Madge, about Medicaid um, uh, payment of family caregivers in, in Massachusetts, that is, in fact, a um, uh, available um, in most all states. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there's been a shift towards consumer direction, which allows individuals um, who are eligible for Medicaid to be able to self-direct um, their care so that they can pay, choose to pay a family member instead of a personal care attendant. Right. There are, there's a very confusing system, and um, so it's, uh, the, the, and the payment is not a significant amount. So in terms of payment, it's, um, you know, it certainly is compensation that may be very necessary and important, but it is, it is n not necessarily um, a living wage for many, for many people. Um, uh, the issue, uh, one of the issues that you, um, that Carol mentioned, um, it has to do with the with assessment, and it is true that assessment is a caregiver assessment is a as the term is problematic. Uh, caregivers don't necessarily want to be assessed. They they have misperceptions about what's meant. However, um, most effective interventions that have been evaluated rely on an assessment um, specifically to address the Carol's point that um, caregiving uh, family caregivers and caregiving circumstances are highly diverse. So it is not uh, what caregivers need is not a one size fits all approach. And an assessment really is the, um, the mechanism by which uh, a um, tailored uh, support can be provided to help address um, caregivers' needs. It builds on their circumstances and not only their challenges but their strengths. Um, most of the evidence, though, um, that has underpinned caregiver assessment has not been conducted within care delivery. So there's a real need for um, to take um, evidence-based approaches that have worked in um, outside of care delivery and learn how do we take the, these approaches and begin to embed them in care delivery so that we can begin to really address the needs of, of individuals and their within the context of their families. 
Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate that. All right, I want uh, Dory to uh, remind us about something, uh, Dorian, uh, important, and then we're going to go around the horn and get some uh, final thoughts from each of our panelists today. I'm sorry this hour goes so fast, and you can, uh, you know, I guess, yeah, clap me upside the head for uh, trying to <laughs> stuff in these really big topics in this hour. You've all been a fabulous audience. Don't go away just yet. Dorian. Sure. Thanks, Mitch. Um, so 2016 marks the 28th year of an event that has shaped the course of healthcare quality improvement in profound, enduring ways, IHI's annual National Forum on Quality Improvement in Healthcare. The National Forum is a great opportunity to play a part in affecting real change in healthcare quality and safety, and to meet with and learn from healthcare professionals to gain actionable ideas to, br to bring that real change to your organization. We're excited to invite you to lend your voice, share your ideas, and join a force of great minds this December in Orlando, Florida, in the United States. Um, for more information, visit IHI.org slash forum, and we hope to see you in December. That's right. Thank you much, uh, Dorian, and hopefully we can continue these conversations. Always would love to do it with many of you in person. All right, I'm going to go around the horn, and I'm going to start, uh, I guess, let me start with Becky, and just some final ideas. Uh, you got, you're in the midst of some great stuff. Uh, any parting thoughts, uh, Becky, and then we'll go to Meg. Thanks. Um, yeah, I just I think that this is this was an amazing panel, and just thank you so much for organizing it and giving such diverse perspectives on how different walks of life are approaching these, this very important topic. Um, uh, personally, I think that this area is ripe for innovation. It's ripe for understanding how the health system. Um, can support families in all that they do, um, whether that is pr using the information that we know and leveraging infrastructure at the healthcare systems or working directly with those patients and families to understand um, certain barriers or expectations that we may not be doing well. Um, you know, Geisinger is invested in, I think, in this area. We have, um, we're new in this area as well. And, uh, I mean, really would be looking to use uh, advanced application uh, software engineering and, and analytics to, to kind of really catapult what, what we're talking here, talking about here in a way that's really advancing the way we think about this on a national scale. Okay. So, thank, thank you again. Yeah, and thank you so much for being part of the program, Becky Stamets from Geisinger. Meg Cabot, uh, final thoughts from you. Yeah, I would just add one of the things that we haven't talked about is uh, not so much, uh, you know, getting at the caregiver through the individual who requires the caregiver, but also the caregiver themselves and looking at ways that we can innovate around asking people if they are providing care for someone. It's an area I'd really like to expand within VA about a just by statistically, I can tell you that about a third of our, our veterans are caring for uh, aging spouses, non-veterans themselves, and we need to be asking them if they're doing that kind of work, how it's impacting them and how we can support them as well because it has health implications. So I think that's the important other side of all of this work. Right. So some real inquiry and because uh, there's another sort of invisibility that may be going on. We right. don't even know uh, the caregivers in our midst, the family caregivers. So that's a really great point. Thanks so much, uh, Meg, for being part of the program. Uh, let me turn now to uh, Carol for some final thoughts from you. Um, well, my final thought is, is actually um, a, a constant thought, is um, a lot of programs get started and don't actually listen to what their family caregivers are saying. So always, to my mind, the important element is always listening to the voice of the family caregivers because they are not all alike, and they have... They, once they are asked, they have a lot of really good ideas about how they could be helped. So it's a question of bringing together what, what um, innovations exist with the, the expressed desires of the family caregivers. Thank you so much, Carol Levine. I know you've been at this for a long time. It's a real honor to have you be part of our discussion today. Jennifer. Oh, I just want to thank, um, thank you for the opportunity to um, be a part of this uh, panel, and it's really very exciting that there's so much interest in identifying strategies to better support patients and families. Um, and 
Um, I, uh, I think, you know, the question that we didn't really talk about all that much was, you know, learning networks. And I think that that would be very exciting to really try to think about how do we develop best practices and disseminate them so that we can really try to help families in a more systematic way. Perhaps a new era in, in the resourcing and the learning system. Uh, Christina, um, uh, also, I'm, I did, Christina didn't get a huge vocal role, but don't uh, be deceived. She had a huge role in helping me shape and bringing me together with this, this fine panel today. What uh, might folks look for next, I think, from IHI uh, around this topic as we learn along with everyone else? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Madge. I mean, I think a couple of things. So one is just I think this call is making us realize the rich amount of simple things that people can do to get started on this work, as well as the complexity of really changing the system. We will be doing some upcoming programming to make sure that we do uh, expeditions to help people think about how to really enact this in their systems. And then I think we'll also be looking to continue to advance the conversation at forums, summits, and other um, other places as well. So really excited that we got the conversation started today. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Christina Gunther Murphy. All right. You've been a great panel. You've been a great audience. I do want to remind you that you are prompted when you log off the show if you want to download the chat, um, but you have other opportunities. <laughs> uh, all this material will actually be archived. I'm going to say not tomorrow by Monday morning, our dear John is uh, getting a little mini vacation in there. So look for all this material on the website on uh, Monday by Monday afternoon. Uh, next up on WIHI, November 3rd, we're going to be talking building systems of safety with Carol Harridan and Alan Frankel. Don't miss that conversation from two very, very expert folks in the field of patient safety. Uh, do uh, You have another prompt when you get off today. It, uh, it asks if you would fill out a brief survey, and we really do look at that survey very quickly and find out what we did well and what we could always do better. Uh, also, uh, you can find uh, this uh, archived version of the program not only on IHI.org, but on iTunes. And if you subscribe under the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, uh, you'll uh, be receiving that automatically and you won't have to go searching for it. Any questions whatsoever, email info at IHI.org. Now, there are all kinds of people who help make WIHI possible, and they include John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth James, and Haley Ladd. I want to thank Doreen, Dorian Burks for managing today's program, and also want to thank Catherine and Mather, who helped out on Twitter. And as always, it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.